0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Hello! Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host. Evan, how are you, sir? I'm great, Max. It's good to see you on my computer screen. Yes, it's nice to see you once again on Zoom. Uh, Aaron is AWOL this week. He's missing. He's deserted us. He's left us. Uh, I'm sure he'll be back soon. <laughs> uh, but for the meantime, why don't I tell you about who's on the show this week? Please do. This week on the show, Young Fan. She is a staff writer at the New Yorker. Uh, She covers China for the magazine. She's written about business in China. She wrote about the Hong Kong protests uh, earlier this year. She's written about Hollywood, all kinds of uh, different things. But last week she had a piece in the magazine. Uh, It was called Motherland. And um, that is what this episode is primarily about is that essay. She has a, a uh, fantastic summary of it early on in this conversation, but very quickly, did you read it, Evan? Should uh, I tell yes. you about it? Yes, indeed. But I think you should still summarize it for those who might not have. Uh, the story very quickly is that Zaiyang's mother. Uh, has ALS, she is paralyzed, the only thing she can move are her eyes and she is in a nursing home in New York City and she is cared for 24 hours a day by a health aide that Young pays for uh, and this woman, uh, there are two of them, they rotate, keep her alive uh, and at the height of the COVID panic in April the health aides were uh, forced to leave the hospital and Jiayang had no real options other than to take to Twitter and plead with New York City health officials, with uh, officials at the nursing home to let these health aides back in, basically to save her mother's life. And as part of that, she tweeted a picture, a uh, screen grab of FaceTime of her on the phone with her mom. And that picture ended up going viral in China, particularly among Chinese nationalists, who said some of the most awful things you can possibly imagine to her, including that this was comeuppance for her journalism. It was retribution for going against the motherland. The piece is incredible. It also gets into the history of her relationship with her mother, which is deeply, deeply complicated. Uh, And it was one of those ones, Evan, I know you've had this experience too, where like I wasn't even done reading it. And I emailed her and asked her to come on the show. Yeah. Um, It's just, it's an incredible piece. I I highly recommend reading it. Maybe even press pause right now and go read it before the conversation. But um, it was one of those, uh, it was one of those moments where this show feels like a little bit of a scam. Like I could get her to come talk to me because I was just, I was so blown away by the piece. So anyway, that's this week's episode. If you have moments that you want to share with the world or projects or new jobs or ideas... Uh, you could start an email newsletter and a great place to do it is with MailChimp they make this show possible and we thank them for their sponsorship nice segue thank you <laughs>
0: and now here's Max with Jayong Fan
2: young, welcome uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for doing this.
3: I'm incredibly happy to be here.
2: I'm incredibly happy to have you. Uh, there are so many things that I would love to talk to you about, and I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time to talk about your career and your coverage of China for The New Yorker. You started there as a fact checker. I'm interested in all of that. But I think maybe for this conversation, if you don't mind, we could just focus on this essay that you published Last week. And I want to dig into this essay because in many ways it just blew me away. And I will admit to you that before I was done reading it, I sent you that email asking you to come on the show. I (laughs) I was not even done.
3: That is an incredibly high compliment. I mean, thank you. I mean, I guess that the, the what, what would you have done if the piece really went <laughs> south?
0: What, the, is there
3: a delete? I mean, is there a function that you can um, retrieve the, in email like within five minutes? No, or no, would no. you have had to just bite the bullet?
2: No, no. <laughs> that no, had to no, interview
3: no. me despite Did, knowing that I was a total hack.
2: When, when, well, I had a lot of faith. I was not uh, worried about the downside risk in the way that you're talking about. But, um, <laughs> That's what I'd love to talk about and before I ask you to sort of summarize it for me I think the thing I'm genuinely wondering is uh how are you? How are you doing?
3: I'm okay. Um I think writing the piece was cathartic, which is not to say that it hasn't also sent me down spirals of doubt about being so exposed in the world. I've been very grateful for the number of responses I've received, but I also feel very vulnerable. I feel a little bit hollowed out. And uh, I realize maybe that's to be expected, but um, I think I'm still riding through kind of these waves of both um, doubt and uncertainty about whether I've done the right thing in um, publishing such a personal piece.
2: I imagine that. The last week and the last six months. I don't know, I don't know how um you wouldn't be feeling a little hollowed out at the moment.
3: Yeah, thank you um, for saying that. I know how privileged I am to have had a piece that's received generously positive responses, but it's not like any of the pieces I've written before, some of which have had a paragraph or two of my personal history. But this piece feels much more raw Mm -hmm. in its depiction of my uh, life and my mother's life. And I also wonder if, I guess I've never said this out loud, I I also sort of wonder if that is all I'm worth, that it is all of my value put on these pages. And I get scared about that.
2: What do you what do you mean by that?
3: Well, I've never been so forthright about my past on the page and it has felt like the most shameful secret that I've carried with me, but it's also felt like a source of perverse power, the sense that this is a really dark part of my past that the public does not know about, but I can live on. I have been performing as someone who people thought were, you know, more or less normal. And now it has come out. And when I say hollowed out, that's what I mean. I wonder if I've depleted myself of both the thing that I've been most shameful about, but of the thing that I always thought kind of made me a little bit different from everyone else.
2: And so by having it out in the world, it takes away that feeling of sort of power that comes from being different
3: well i worry that um, perhaps all my stories henceforth will be read with an edge of pity like you'll lower the bar for me because you know that i've had this really strange and pitiful background and that's concerning to me
2: where does that um where does that fear come from after reading the essay, it feels like that's connected to some things that you write about in the piece. But where do you think that fear comes from?
3: Partly from a deep insecurity that I perhaps don't deserve to be where I am. And if people knew that, I've also had this very circuitous route to where I am. And if they appreciate the harrowing nature of this journey, they might think that obviously I can't be held to the same standards because I've been traumatized and fucked up in all this way and that maybe I deserve a little bit of slack. And I think from them, it would come from a place of great, Compassion, but for me, that's my greatest existential fear that I will be thought of as less capable and less competent and less able to achieve because I've been hampered by the circumstances of my life.
2: I'm sorry. Uh I'm so sorry that it feels that way.
3: don't say that, don't say that you're sorry, you are you now <laughs> your sympathy um only makes me worry that uh now you don't think I'll be able to perform as well on on this podcast as you are no, um, no no. accomplished guests
2: no no, no, come on, not at all, that's not what I mean i I mean I wish that um
3: I know I know i'm I'm teasing, but
2: okay, um... all right, well let's talk about um. Let's talk about this essay. It's a a very hard one to summarize quickly, but can you try and summarize it quickly?
3: I will try. So my mother has been sick with ALS for 10 years now, and she has been on a ventilator for six years, and I'm her caretaker, her only family, and her life has been really the centerpiece of my life. That's one piece of information to lay out. The other is that I have been writing about China for the New Yorkers since 2014, and I sometimes have written pretty critical pieces about the Chinese government and unvarnished critiques of Chinese society. And most recently, I wrote a long piece about the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong and I have been regarded as um, with great suspicion by um, the Chinese government and I think by Chinese social media as an ethnically Chinese reporter who is now working for an American publication. So then the pandemic hit um, earlier this spring, and the pandemic caused the nursing home in which my mother lives to close down to visitors which made perfect sense. But my mother has ALS, which in her case means that she is cognitively fully there, but has almost no functioning voluntary muscles left in her body. So she, even though she's on a ventilator and requires a ventilator for her every breath, what's just as important is her health aide, who's with her 24-7, this aide is not a staff member of the hospital. It is a private aide and makes sure that the only working muscles in her body, her eyes, can communicate her needs and that she is suctioned, turned, all these tiny, seemingly small caretaking tasks that ensure she doesn't succumb to an infection. So at the height of the pandemic in New York City where I live, her private aide was asked to leave was banned from the hospital and it was apparent to my mother and I that she would not survive in that institution by herself. So the piece is about this Twitter campaign that I out of desperation and without much planning without any planning, took on to ask the public really for help or to actually just, I mean, to document the situation with this very, I think, unsophisticated, but completely kind of from my heart, my body soul, and soul, you know, to ask the world, how do I keep my mother alive? And over the course of 24 hours, um, right before and after my mother's aid was kicked out, I um, posted these threads that had pictures of uh, my mother's face as she is in tears about her fate. And because it's on a public platform, it's then picked up by Chinese social media who thinks that this is my due, <laughs> uh, my due comeuppance for being someone who has betrayed. China for so long, to have my mother unplugged by the American government from her ventilator. This is exactly what should happen to a race trader like myself.
0: Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening.
2: To go back to that moment for a second, because I remember watching that campaign unfold on Twitter, and it was at the height of the sort of uncertainty and fear in New York. It was like that period of time where any time you listened, you could hear an ambulance where everyone was walking outside in like hazmat suits. It was really like, it was the scariest time of this whole period. And I remember seeing those tweets and they felt so desperate Mm. and so raw. It It was, they were really striking and it was kind of hard almost to understand exactly what was happening.
3: Yes. And at the time I was putting out tweets, even as... Hysterical and sleep deprived and quaking as I was inside. I, I had an ambivalence about what I was doing because Twitter can be and has been so profoundly misused for theatrical performances. And here I was making the spectacle of myself. And I was writing in particular to the president of New York City. Uh, health and hospitals in hopes that he could communicate with the executives at my mother's hospital. It was very much a long shot, but I had no idea who else to appeal to and who else would have the power to influence this decision to let my mother live. And those pictures were, if you saw them Even now, they're difficult for me to look at. I mean, they're of my mother's face, which is bloated and mottled with tears. It's a screenshot I took of, you know, FaceTiming with my mother. So there's her face, and then you see my face and the gaping hole of my mouth through which I'm screaming and crying for her to to stay with me. So those pictures really, I think startled the internet and they made their way to Chinese social media. And the story was completely retold on Chinese social media as the U S government attempting to pull my mom off her ventilator, possibly because she's Chinese and the U S only government only wants to save Americans. And that story really inflames the Chinese internet and causes many nationalistic Chinese trolls to come to my Twitter feed and tell me how deserving I am of my fate and how I should die with my mother and that a fatal version of the coronavirus cannot come fast enough for me. Um, so that's the present of the story, and then I go back to my childhood with my mother, our very unusual past together, how we immigrated from China to the US, how we ended up in one of the wealthiest towns in the US, because my mother, um, despite being indigent and not knowing if she could survive in this country, wanted to realize her one goal of giving me a good education and became a housekeeper, a live-in housekeeper in Greenwich, Connecticut. And I recount some of that experience, what that was like. And I very loosely draw a parallel between so much of the rage that I detect is coming at me on the internet And the resentment and the very graphic theory nature of that fury and the frustrations my mother felt as she was trying to support me. And at times the utter fury she felt toward me as someone who possibly could also betray her after all the sacrifices that she had made for me. And the story explores how just as important as physical survival was the idea of this Chinese concept of manse, which is a combination of both social standing and face saving. And my only goal during my April Twitter campaign had been to save my mother's life But in the back of my head was this fear of betraying her, of putting such humiliating details of our life, pictures of our of our present predicament on the internet and how that could devastate her, and thinking that as long as this story does not get back to her, that she will be spared this humiliation. And um, in the end. I get this startling message from my mother's aide, who is, in the end, after harrowing, you know, 24 hours, let back into the hospital. And the aide has, <laughs> the story of my, um, of my villainy has made it so, <laughs> um, so many times around the Chinese internet that it has made it onto my, my very technologically confused <laughs> aide. And by the time she, messages me. She she has told me that she um, has relayed the story of my mother and I, as it is being told on the Chinese internet, to my mother. And how paralyzed I was by fear and doubt that after everything I'd done, my mother might be the one most convinced that I have killed her through this act of betrayal.
2: Through the act of Publicizing these images.
3: Of publicizing these images, which to her is perhaps the ultimate betrayal. And then um, receiving this message from her that contained a Chinese idiom, a clean body needs no washing, indicating that if you haven't done anything wrong, you have nothing to atone for. And feeling like... Every cell in my body was simultaneously filled and depleted at the same time by that single message.
2: What do you mean? What do you mean by that?
3: It was not a message that I could have expected or hoped for, but it was one that gave me a glimpse of her strength beyond even what I had estimated before. And from the rest of the piece, you'll see how much she has suffered and how she has had to privatize that pain. But I did not know that her grit would extend to being able to understand the full shape of, of my plight and hers from inside a body that's been completely paralyzed within this institution that has been sealed off for the sake of the pandemic, in a city that has co- ground to a halt in New York City. I, I didn't think that she would be able to. I underestimated how she might find that strength in herself.
2: First of all, um, that's an incredible retelling. Of the essay. All over
3: verbose, but thank you. I appreciate
2: that. <laughs> second, the second thing is it is really surprising in the way that you have described her and set her up when that message comes at the end. And, you know, it feels as a reader as though, in that most panicked moment in April, when her aide has been removed from her room, and you feel like your only choice, your only option is to take this public campaign to Twitter, which you know on some level is the last thing that your mother would want, but yet it's the only option to keep her alive. And then it turns, well, it does two things. One is it is successful. Her aid is placed back in her room. Her life is saved. And then it metastasizes and turns online into this thing that you are attacked for the whole time wondering whether your mom is going to find out that you've done this. And then she does. And it's, and it is so surprising that you're not just like absolved at the end by her, but she's proud of you.
3: Right. Uh, That is a word or a concept that I have wrestled with for so much of my life. And I know I'm not unique in that. I think all children spend much of their lives looking for, their parents' approval. But for me, it's been a particularly tortured journey. And my mother, for all her sacrifices, has been extremely withholding in that respect. And it comes Mm. from, I think, an immigrant's sense that if I tell you that you are doing okay and that I feel okay about what you're doing, perhaps your momentum will be sapped. Which is why It often makes me more emotional when I hear another immigrant parent tell her child to do better, those two words, which infuriated, aggrieved, set me down, spiraling holes of um, anxiety and self-loathing as a child has struck me as the most poignant as I've grown older. Because There's so much hope and so much sense of a dream deferred in those two words, do better. And that's why when, you know, it's kind of you to mention that my mother, you know, she does say that she is proud of me at the end, but it almost feels like vocabulary from a different language. Hmm do better is the language that she speaks and has been the language that I'm most familiar with.
2: Well, I guess that was kind of what I wanted to ask you about the end, which was the way you just described it is as though some part of her was revealed to you that you hadn't seen before. And I wonder whether that ability, like that language that she found, whether that had always been there or whether Your mom has changed, you know, like she's a very fixed person in the essay. Like you are changing and adapting and evolving in all of these ways. And your mother is a fixed presence. And I just wondered whether like that ability to say that to you had been there the whole time or or whether it was new.
3: Well, first of all, I think it's very perceptive of you to note that fixed quality about her is the most astounding and impressive aspect of her grit. But where that comes from, I think it's a combination of two things. I think on the one hand, it is a testament to her own calculus of survival in the end to be able to appreciate that for her living body to continue in this world. This was the only option. I think she knew that had there been another way, I would not have gone for radical exposure. So I think some part of her knew that what I did, no matter how unseemly it was, enables her to be here with me for a little bit longer number one, and number two, her ALS diagnosis has been the greatest physical affliction of her life, but it has also, in some small way, persuaded her into believing something that she has never fully believed, that a relationship can be beyond transactional. That is that as... She lies defenseless and wasted in this body that has betrayed her. I have not left her. And I think for her, it was a surprise that she has become the centerpiece at a time when, in her language, she is of no use to me anymore. And I think that experience has changed her in some ways. Whereas when she was healthy, she couldn't quite believe that my love for her is beyond anything she could do for me. Because her conception of herself has been built for so long on the purpose, on what she could do to, to help usher me along on my pursuit of a good education. So it's a combination of both those things.
2: Can we talk a little bit about what she was trying to do for you when you were a kid?
3: Yeah. Um, It's a story that I always um, worry veers into melodrama and poverty porn (laughs) way too um, nakedly. Um, And I think maybe that's why I've been resistant to telling it. Mm -hmm. But the bare bones is that my mom and I arrived in the U.S. from... was in a backwater city, an inland city, Chongqing. She had been a doctor in an army compound. We arrive. My father had left for the U.S. when I was two. My mom and I join him when I am seven. And a year and a half after our arrival, their marriage completely disintegrates. And it was an unhappy marriage for a very long time, born out of a lot of immigrant pain and trauma. But my father had been having an affair in the U.S. prior to our arrival, and he leaves. So my mother and I are destitute and are about to be evicted. And in a rare moment of um, grace from a God who I don't believe in, a very kind... (laughs) telephone man is sent our way to um, disconnect the phone that we can no longer pay for. And he invites us to live with him and his family in West Haven. He has children that are a little bit older than me. And it is in the few months that we are living with him that my mother learns that to realize her dream of giving me a decent education we would have to move somewhere much, much richer than we could ever afford to live in. And my mother comes upon, or is told about a town that she um, calls uh, Green Witch um, <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> um, making me think, I mean, for a long time that a Green Witch was the mascot of uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, this very wealthy town in Fairfield County, and my mother answers a newspaper ad. She becomes a living housekeeper um, in a Greenwich family. And that's how I am able to attend at first a public school in a very wealthy neighborhood and then become, in short order, a uh, near full scholarship student at a private school in Greenwich and then an elite boarding school in Massachusetts. And then after that... Um, a pretty good college, all on <laughs> scholarships, um, and uh, you know that that journey um, has all just been this conveyor belt of um, elite higher education institutions that I would have never ridden if it was not for my mother's almost heedless uh, determination.
2: What do you think her ambitions and aspirations were for you professionally, and what were yours?
3: I think my mother's dreams for me professionally couldn't have been terribly concrete, but it must have mirrored in some ways her dream of what living in America was like when we were in the U.S. In the sense that in 80s and early 90s China, opportunities were so scarce and the sense of the world as a criminally competitive place where you had to fight tooth and nail for anything that you had was a spirit that she carried so deeply within her and when it came to my education she just wanted me to have a better life so I imagine that she might have thought you know being a lawyer sounds pretty good and being <laughs> an a Accountant sounds pretty good. Um, some kind of white collar profession where I, didn't, I wouldn't have had to worry about subsistence. And for me, one of the great privileges of being surrounded by nurturing teachers in an educational space that values you as an individual is um, you become snobbish about professions that that exists just to earn a paycheck. So I never nursed the dream of being an accountant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No offense to accountants. Um, And, you know, found for myself um, that survival to me entailed a relationship with books and that the desperation was every bit as extreme as it had been for my mother. So being immersed in the world of books um, led me to think that maybe I could tell a story worthy of being put out into the world. But pretty early on, I think my mother was concerned about my lack of ambitions when it comes to, you know, earning the big paycheck. <laughs> I think I think that was pretty... Uh, strange and um, alarming for her. But of course, it is because of the quality of the schools that she put me into that being clothed and fed were not my first concerns.
2: And your mother was a third-generation stalwart member of the Communist Party.
3: Yes, she was.
2: Where on her list of um, possible outcomes for you do you think – Writing about the Chinese government for a major U.S. magazine fell.
3: Pretty near the bottom. But all these years of being in the U.S. has acquainted her in the most vague of ways with publications that people know about, like the New York Times, the New Yorker the Wall Street Journal. I think these might be the only three that she knows. And I think the New Yorker might only be through kind of my affiliation with it. Um, So she realizes that at least for Americans, there is a level of status and prestige associated with writing for these magazines. And I think it is by the grace of that, that my mother finds my writing about (laughs) the Chinese government not as utterly intolerable (laughs) as she might have, you know, found it.
2: Do you talk to her about your work?
3: She asks about my work, but only in the sense of, is my boss going to fire me anytime soon? (laughs) And also, am I writing something that is offensive to China? And In one way or another, because um, I'm writing uncensored versions of my reporting, it probably is, but before every reporting trip, she would blink out with her eyes. I mean, she can no longer speak because she's on a ventilator, so all communication is quite laborious. She has to blink out letters one at a time as another person holds up an alphabet chart and... She has told me countless times at this point, before, during, after reporting trips, do not go against China. I think that is her greatest concern. I've read her a few of my stories. She's been utterly unimpressed. She doesn't understand why it's taken me months to produce something that's, you know, 5,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 words long. Her reactions usually, is that it? (laughs) (laughs) and her English I should add that her English you know is not sufficient for her to be reading the English original versions of these pieces they a lot of my pieces have been translated into uh, Chinese by you know crowdsourced translation online so that's what she reads but usually she's so bored by them I mean the number of times halfway through like her eyes have literally glazed over (laughs) so (laughs) I don't think she's terribly interested in what I write. She's concerned that I still have a job and that I am not being too much of a political dissident in my capacity as a writer.
2: Why do you think this is what you ended up doing?
3: I think the most honest answer is probably the most abstract one and possibly unhelpful one to our listeners, I think considering the unusual shape of our lives, the lives of my mother and I, from bare subsistence living to one of the richest enclaves in America and the world, I think, it made me think about what the value of existence is. It also endowed me very early on with a sense of my fraudulence as a person who was living multiple lives. I was an imposter at school as the scholarship student. I was an imposter as the daughter of a housekeeper at home. And it made me wonder, what should a person be? And how should a person be? And being a writer has become a lifelong quest to answer those questions. And being a journalist in particular has been... An aspiration to observe other lives and the relationship between individuals and systems, um, citizens and societies, in hopes of figuring out what that ideal life and that ideal relationship between an individual and a society should be.
2: Do you feel like you've closed that gap? Like, does it all feel less fraudulent now?
3: Oh, not at all. I still (laughs) think that I'm going to be found out one of these days, um, even after I've told uh, this melodramatic story of my upbringing. Um, I think that's something I'll be grappling with for the rest of my life. And likely I'll be writing into the sense of fraudulence and the shame that comes with it. I know it sounds like great burdens, and you know that I should be in a therapist chair as soon as possible, and I have been um, for a lot of my life, but I would like to think that they also force me to confront these questions and confront myself with the brutal honesty of someone who isn't just writing because it seems like. You know, kind of, at least for (laughs) you know those in the middle class, a prestigious, maybe meaningful profession that it fills a real hunger in me and keeps me tethered to reality the way that I hadn't felt for so much of my life as someone who um, thought I lived on the margins of reality because I was pretending to be someone else for most of my life.
2: I've done like hundreds of these interviews now. And one thing that feels pretty clear to me, I think I've talked about it on the show before is that like on some level, everyone's always writing about themselves, (laughs) but I wonder if you can try to articulate how the journalism that you do, not, not this essay, but writing about the protests in Hong Kong, writing about business in China, how that gets at that thing that you're talking about, how through journalism you can find honesty and authenticity and do that work that you're describing.
3: That's really um, a good question. And I know that it seems unlikely that these abstract philosophical queries I'm trying to answer through pretty concrete <laughs> socio-political journalism, but In investigating businesses um, in China, be it, you know, e-commerce or beautification apps um, in China, I think as unlikely as it sounds, I'm also finding pieces of my parents and my past. You know, before we talked about why did my mother want to come to the U.S. in the first place? You know, it was for a better life. Well, what was that world that she was born into? And what informed the pillars of that world? I mean, China has changed vertiginously in the last 30 years. But in some ways, it's the values of Chinese society have remained pretty much the same. I mean, values don't change, you know, over the course of just decades. And to be a bit more concrete about it, I did this piece on I did two pieces, one on mistress dispelling in China, basically this uh, pretty new industry where a spouse who knows that, um, a wife who knows that her husband is cheating can hire a third party to come and distract the affair partner so that the husband can come back um, to the marriage or to kind of rest the husband's attention back to scorned wife in some other ways. Um, Learning about why Chinese society has such an appetite for that kind of organization, as completely absurd and almost sensational as it might seem to us in the U.S., helps me learn about fractures in my parents' marriage. And I know a danger of that is of thinking too much about the self is the meanest, is the narcissism of every story. I mean, as a journalist, you're not supposed to be putting yourself in every story and hogging the camera in that way. But for me, at the same time, I know that I can only understand the world better through its relationship to you know, the values I have absorbed of this world at an early age. So in order to illuminate the world and hopefully say something insightful about this world for my readers, I really have to look deep into, I guess, the ugliest part of myself and Mm -hmm. how some of that was shaped by my relationship to both Chinese society and American society. So I'm very aware of the narcissism involved in thinking so hard about myself. But in terms of gleaning kind of hard truths, I just don't know any other way to do it. And similarly, when um, it comes to I wrote a piece about e-commerce and the development of e-commerce in China. This company that's very much like Amazon um, is called JD.com and visiting villages in China that are very much like the villages my dad's side of the family came from and also my mom's, a generation further back. And all of a sudden they have drones now coming into their village to deliver um, (laughs) everything from crabs to diapers to um, cell phone cases. And that evolutionary leap that seems to have occurred in a generation is One that also happened to me um, coming from a China, you know, my mother was making the equivalent of 50 bucks a month right before our arrival um, to the U.S. And then moving into these Greenwich mansions where our employers were, you know, millionaires, if not billionaires. I mean, that happened in the course of a few years. Mm -hmm. Um, So those changes that I was reporting on in China through Figuring out why this e-commerce company exploded in China and was able to become as successful as it was also gives me details to answers that my mother was ever never able to when it came to I wanted a better life. Well, what exactly was involved in that better life? I and mean, right. w- what is the opposite poles of that better? So reporting these stories to get back to your question was really helping me to delve into the shape of Chinese society that had informed so many of my family's values and those of uh, Chinese American, you know, immigrants I knew. Um, I know that my story is by no means, um, it's a little extreme, but it's not so different in its rough contours to that of many other Chinese American immigrants.
2: It's so interesting to hear you say all of that because as a reader, you know, I've been reading your work for years And there's lots of stories of yours on long form, you know, and, and then this essay came out and it felt so different to me, but then hearing you say all that, it feels like it's right on the same continuum, you know,
3: I'm very happy to hear you say that. And I have that exact same feeling as you, like when I wrote this, I thought, talk about falling into that narcissistic hole, right? Like, I've been sort of edging closer and closer to it because with my past stories, you'll see a paragraph and two of my past, um, of my childhood. But here it is, like, you know, (laughs) um, it has metastasized. It is all I am talking about in this particular um, story. But uh, I think subconsciously, I have been working my way here. And I hope that this story is kind of the most honest account of not only where i have arrived at where i am but also of this very fractious relationship between china and the us as i'm sure you know you've read reports about that's been deteriorating for quite some time and for it to accumulate I mean, not that, you know, um, my story by any means has much bearing on this most important geopolitical relationship of our times. But I think it is a product of the disintegration of this relationship. And as a reader, I've always related better to stories that had individual characters. I mean, I like political commentary. I mean, I think they're very necessary, but oftentimes the abstraction can distract from the import of what's at stake for the millions and billions living both in China and the U.S. And my story, I know it seems um, like one that's very much centered on a mother and a daughter, but I hope that one can also appreciate how polarized the relationship has become between China and the U.S. and how disinformation is now... A fact of life in the depiction of um, the U.S. in China, and you know what kind of ramifications that has.
2: Well, what do you think the ramifications will be on your own work of having published this story, having written this story that does put your whole life out there, but also puts you in the middle of that. Kind of disinformation and tension what would the impact on your work be now now that now that you put it all out there
3: <laughs> right I worried about this quite a bit um, I mean that, this exact question that you asked I worried that I was taking too much attention away from the subjects I was supposed to cover and shining the light on myself and then how do you go from here and I have been so fortunate to have talented, Predecessors like Evan Osnos, um, who was a China correspondent before me, and um, Peter Hessler, who's actually in China right now, writing about China, and, you know, especially Evan, and sometimes um, Pete, to an extent. I mean, their stories are about people other than themselves. I mean, Pete sometimes will um, recount his interactions with his subjects, but neither of them have been as narcissistic as I've been. But I then realized that our identities are fundamentally different. They are Americans, you know, Caucasian Americans who went to China as adults. And of course, for them, um, their sense of responsibility is being able to tell the story of, you know, people in this foreign land and giving these people as much dignity and um, sense of complexity as possible on the page. For me, I think that relationship with my subjects is a little bit different as um, ethnic Chinese and as uh, someone whose story is so inextricably linked with the story of China. So for me to adopt you know, their particular voice as much and as wonderfully as it has been authentic to them, for me to imitate that voice would be somewhat disingenuous And for a long time, you know, I thought that's what I should do. I mean, so much of New Yorker journalism, especially the past generation, has kept the writer assiduously out of um, the frame. But for me, I know that authenticity would require the creation of a different voice for a writer that, you know, a writer like me wouldn't have been in the page, was not in the pages of The New Yorker um, Mm -hmm. a generation earlier. And yes, I know that um, much of my story is out there, but because it's so peculiar, I think I need to get myself out of the way first, if that makes any sense. And for me then to tell, you know, the story about, China and the unfolding relationship between China and the U.S. I no longer have to, you know, explain, you know, what my vantage right. point might be and why I'm particularly maybe familiar with this. My voice is also, I think, a testament to where America has developed to at this uh, point. I mean, hopefully, some measure of its progress and its acceptance of more uh, diverse voices, and that uh, going forward, um, when I go. Back to kind of more traditional journalism, I'm hoping that what comes across on the page is more authentic yeah. and um, illuminating. You know, no promises, but that's my <laughs> that's my hope.
2: I need you to promise. I actually need <laughs> you to promise. No, I find that I I find that idea beautiful. That that instead of it being complicated, you freed yourself up to do the work.
3: Well put. I think that's actually a much more succinct version of what I, you know, was talking in circles about um, the last (laughs) few minutes. I think that's exactly it.
2: Uh, Well, you know, it's easy to be succinct after the person lays it all out, you know. (laughs) Um, You just talked about how previous generations of the New Yorker, it wouldn't have been you being the China correspondent. And before we go, you know... I sent you a note when I was reading the piece early last week and and we were, you know, setting a time and figuring it out. And then I got this email from you. A 4 um,
3: a.m. rambling note. Um, Let's just be clear. Yes.
2: Yeah, it was a 4 a.m. I'm not going to say it was a rambling note, but it was a 4 (laughs) 4 a.m. note. And it was about what you wanted people to take away from this conversation that we were going to have. And particularly writers, young writers in the words you use, that came from non-traditional backgrounds. (laughs) Uh, You wanted them to find something useful and affirming of themselves. I'm I'm literally just reading the email. (laughs) And I want to give you the floor to speak directly to the people that you were thinking of. But before you do, I just want to read one other line, which maybe can be the jumping off point for you, which is, you wrote this. So, But when you grow up the child of poor immigrants who don't speak much English and spend years as a mute outcast at school, you're afraid of attention and are petrified of being listened to. And you've put yourself and you and your mother out there in such a profound way in this piece to come from a place where at a different point in your life you were petrified of being listened to at all. I don't know. I just find it quite moving, honestly. And so... This is now my rambly question, but, um, I guess I wanted to give you the floor to talk to those aspiring writers you have in your head, or I don't know, maybe yourself as a kid, like if you had needed to be affirmed, then what, what would you have needed to hear?
3: Well, first of all, I would have clung to this podcast, like a read, um, <laughs> um I don't think, you know, podcasts not available, um, when I was growing up, but For young writers who have some glimmer of a sense that, you know, they want to be a journalist, they want to be a nonfiction writer, they want to be a fiction writer, there's so many barriers that we don't speak of. And for me, I mean, perhaps I was a particularly slow and uncharismatic kid and teenager, but I was in awe of others who had a natural grace and confidence about them and loathed myself for not being able to project a certainty about myself and my voice. And I guess what I would want to encourage in aspiring writers who have scraped up against that sense of self-doubt as a result of a life, you know, <laughs> not not lived to kind of prime them for a career um, in journalism, is that please right into your self-doubt, right into that sense that perhaps you are not deserving. There's something authentic and pure in that voice and in your investigations into yourself. And the world deserves to know the quality of your uncertainty. And there is something very, very edifying, I think, to the world to know about the really complicated barriers between a writer's lack of sense of self and the self that emerges on the page. And that we need you. I'm speaking directly to these writers now. We need you more than ever because you give us something that Writers from traditional backgrounds, in all their certainty and grace and eloquence, cannot, which is, you know, the truest exploration of how a self becomes a self. And um, to those writers, please continue um, listening to podcasts like these ones, and also um, to believe that you have something really worthy of being heard.
2: Do you feel like you found your voice?
3: I think it's a work in progress. There are better days and there are worse days, but um, you know, doubt still plagues me. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'll. I will ever fully be satisfied with my voice or that I will have a voice, you know, in the way that people talk about Diddy and like, Oh, like she has such a voice and it felt, you know, so fully formed, you know, that, you know, when you read her in the, in the mid twenties, I mean, to me, that was a little bit devastating, you know, to, for the mid twenties me, cause I thought, well, this is over. <laughs> <laughs> Not happening. Likely will never happen. So, you know, wh- why do I even bother?
2: Well, on the good days, right? If there are good days and bad days, Mm. what do the good days feel like?
3: The good days feel like, it feels like the voices that um, have written to me uh, in the past week, whether there are Syrian uh, reporters or Chinese Americans or um, wasps who have uh, never really known that many um, immigrants saying You have written on the page what I have felt and some room inside myself is getting a bit more light. That's what good days feel like. When you get those messages, not just from Chinese American immigrants, but from corners of the world that I have never visited and from people who I once thought, um, you know, my WASP classmates could never understand the places that I have inhabited, hearing from them that I shed a little bit light on those shadowy corners of their mind and their worlds. There's nothing like it.
2: Jiayang, thank you so much for taking the time to do this.
3: Thank you. It's a real honor to be here. And my mother, though she does not know the long-form podcast. I did tell her how excited I was going to be on it, and that this was a writer's dream of mine to be invited. She teared up. So thank you for making uh, her dream come true as well.
2: She's very welcome. She's also uh, she's very lucky to have you as a daughter.
3: Oh, don't say, don't say shit like that. Don't why don't, don't don't say that. It makes me want to crawl into a hole from which I'll never emerge.
2: <laughs> thank you.
3: Thank you, Max. Um, It's been a real pleasure.
2: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our new intern is Susan Peterson. Susan, welcome. Our sponsor as always, is MailChimp. Thanks so much to them for making this whole thing possible. If you missed the podcast that Aaron and I did this summer, the books that changed us that we did as part of MailChimp's by the books, go check that out wherever you are listening to this podcast. But thanks, of course, most of all to Young. That is a conversation that is going to stick with me. If you haven't yet, go read the piece. We'll see you next week.